Amen. All right, so we are continuing in John. We're going to pick up where Pastor Matt left off. Thank you, Pastor Matt, for doing a wonderful job uh, preaching God's word this last week. I loved his opening remarks about studying God's word. He talked about the, the, the beehive that he had to get rid of back behind his storage, and he saw the honey dripping from the honeycomb, and that is how the psalmist David describes the word of God, that it is like honey from the honeycomb, sweeter than honey from a honeycomb. And this is the word of God. This is what we are about to study here this morning. What a privilege to study the word of God. And so thank you, Matt. You did a wonderful job. And we're going to pick up where he left off. And I've titled the message this morning directly from the words of Christ in in this text. It is I. Do not be afraid. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word, your word that is sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word that is life to our flesh, is strength in our life. We thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for your word that sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. And what a privilege it is to open your word. And I pray that your people here today would be receptive, that they would hear and receive, that we would be doers of the word, not hearers only. And I've got to ask you this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's ever heard of the trust fall game? Have you ever played the trust fall game? So here's the general idea. You can play it in one of two ways, the trust fall game. You can have one person stand behind you and, and you close your eyes and you fall and you trust that they're going to be there to catch you. And another way I've seen it played, I've seen it played one time, I think it was at an Elevate event possibly I've seen where they had a group of people, one on the right, several people on the right and on the left and they would lock arms in between and the person would fall back into the arms of multiple people. So there's a couple ways to play it. So I've got a question for you. If you could choose to play the trust fall game with a group of people, I've got a couple options of people you could choose to play it with. So if I asked Miss Jobeth, who's a preschool teacher at Homer Christian School, you didn't know you were going to be a part of my introduction, did you? I was praying you were going to be here. Uh, but Miss Jobeth is a preschool teacher at Homo Christians using it to teach my four-year-old Lincoln this next year who was crying on the front row uh, during prayer time. Uh, if you could say, Miss Jobeth, give us five pre-Kers and line them up and, or let's just say six. So we have an even number on, e- on either side and those pre-Kers lock their arms. And, and would there be any of you who would say, let me stand in front of them and, and close my eyes and fall back and trust that they're going to catch me? Would anybody sign up for that? None of us would. Why? Because those pre-cares don't have enough strength and, and wisdom, understanding, and mainly strength to be able to handle any of us falling back on them. How about if I asked you if I got the entire offensive line of the Northern Saints to line up, to link arms, and to fall back? What would you do? Would you, would you say, sure, I, I think they can handle it, right? No, we, we maybe would not necessarily like the trust fall game, but if you had the pre-cares versus the New Orleans State's offensive line, and you had to choose which one you're going to fall back on, you're going to fall back on that, that offensive line there. You're going to close your eyes, and you're going to know, unless they're playing a trick on me, I'm going to fall back, and they'll be able to handle me. And so this reality of trust, this trust fall game, this issue of trust, 
This is what we're talking about this, this morning. This is what this text is about. It's about trust. Will we believe? Will we trust? And just as depending on the situation or the circumstance or the people in our life, sometimes we, we lack trust in situations. We lack trust in God. Sometimes we struggle with our faith. And we are no different than the early disciples. The early disciples, we think, how could they ever not trust Christ? How could they ever not trust him? But they were just like us. And we would think, well, if we lived with Jesus and we saw his miracles and we were able to, to witness those things, we would never not trust him. But the truth is, is that the disciples would be like us and we would be like them. And this account in John 6 is a famous account. It's, it's an account of Jesus walking on the water. It's, a, it's an account of Jesus demonstrating that he is God, that he is truly God because he has control over nature. He can walk on the water. He can calm the storms. And the disciples have a decision to make in this account as to whether they're going to trust Christ. Will they trust him? No matter what is going to happen, no matter the outcome of the circumstances that they're facing, no matter, no matter if they think Jesus is making the right decision in their life and in his life, will they trust? Will they obey? And this is what we're going to see today. This is what we're going to learn. And we're going to look at John 6 and you know, John 6 gives the account of the, uh, of the miracle of Jesus walking in the water and of calming the storm, but it's the shortest account. It's the overview of account of that story. So Matthew and Mark give a more detailed account. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little survey between John, between Matthew and Mark, so we can see all the details of this account of Jesus sending the disciples out into the boat, them going on to cross the sea, the storm coming, Jesus walking on the water. We're going to get all these details from three different gospels here this morning. And so the, the main point that we're going to see in this whole message, in this whole section, I think it would be this. This would be the main point. The Lord calls his disciples to obey him and to trust him in every circumstance. The Lord calls his disciples. How many disciples do we have here today? The Lord calls his disciples to obey him and to trust him in every circumstance. He's calling specifically in this account and in this story. He's calling these literal disciples walking with him to obey him and then to trust him no matter the circumstance. That's the main point of this message. And we'll see that unfold in three different realities concerning the relationship between Jesus and his disciples then and Jesus and us as his disciples now. So let's look at John 6. We'll look at the overview of this account and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into to the other uh, gospels and see the beautiful picture that the Lord will show us of this account. So John 6, starting at verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He got into a boat. They got into a boat and started across the sea of, of, of Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing and and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And he, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So three realities concerning the relationship between Christ and his disciples then and Christ and his disciples now. The first thing we see is that the Lord calls his disciples to radical obedience. The Lord calls his disciples to radical obedience, to obedience, but not just to obey, but, but to, to obey 
even when it doesn't make sense, to obey even when we don't understand, to obey even when maybe we don't want to obey. Radical obedience. This is what the Lord calls for all of his disciples. And to, 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 before we get into unfolding what the other gospels say about this, we have to kind of go back to where Matt ended, where Pastor Matt ended this last week. Jesus had fed the 5,000. He took five loaves and two fish. I love how Pastor Matt said one of the disciples just stole the lunch from a poor young boy there with his five loaves and two fish. And he takes and he multiplies it, feeds. Estimates would have been uh, 10 to 15, maybe 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It is an amazing miracle. It is a creative miracle. And there was 12 basket loaves left over. This is where we left last week, John 6, 14 through 15. And when the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're saying, this is the Messiah. This is the prophet. This is the one. This is, we have been waiting for this one. Because only the prophet, only the Messiah can do something like this. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So I want you to picture the scene. He feeds the multitudes, tens of thousands of people. And they're stirring in their heart because of the powerful reality of that miracle. And they're thinking, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the one. This is the one that we've been looking for and waiting for and praying for. He is the one. And and not only is he going to be an awesome prophet and Messiah, but he fed our bellies. This is amazing. We we thought he was just going to liberate us from Roman oppression, but he's going to feed us as well. And you can just picture the scene, thousands of people clamoring. And I don't know, there would have had to have been leaders that rose up and started talking amongst the, the crowd and saying, this is the king, this is him. Let's go get him, let's talk to him, let's tell him. He must be our king. And so you see, it would have had to have been this, this very loud, boisterous event that was going on and there was a lot of clamor and noise and people get, trying to get to Jesus by force to make him king. They were in awe. There was a huge uproar. And no doubt, Jesus' disciples were in the mix. His disciples would have thought the same thing. Why would they have not thought the same thing as the crowd? They would have thought the same thing because this is what they were waiting for. They didn't yet understand who Jesus was, and we know that through multiple gospel accounts. They did not understand who Jesus was even even until after it wasn't until after he, he resurrected, he was able to, 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 to tell them and he, that they were able to see and then they understood. And then the birth of the church happened on the day of Pentecost, which today is Pentecost Sunday. Happy birthday, church. Right? Today marks, marks Pentecost Sunday, the day the church was birthed. Right? So they didn't, they didn't understand until then. So they would have been a part of the noise of the crowd saying, Jesus, you need to be king. You need to be king. And, and so... They would have believed that this was the obvious thing to do. This, this has to be the pinnacle of your ministry, Jesus. You've done so many other miracles and things, but this must be the pinnacle of your ministry. So the crowd gets together and they move by force to make Jesus king. Now let's look. Let's go to Matthew and look at Matthew's account of the event. John doesn't, John doesn't say this. Matthew says this. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. A couple things in verse 22 here from Matthew about this story. First thing that stands out, he makes them get into the boat, and we'll unpack that, what it means that he made them. But he dismissed the crowds. 
How do you do that? I think we even talked about that this last week. How, how do you gather and organize that many people to feed them? How do you dismiss a crowd of 10,000 people? I mean, like, that's unbelievable. This is a sign of, of Jesus being God. Only God can dismiss 15,000 people and it actually happened, right? What did he do? I don't know. And maybe he just kind of pointed and they all started moving and going away. I don't know. He started speaking with authority and power. He dismissed them. And he was letting them know, no, no, immediately, this is not happening. This is not why I'm here. I am not here to be king. And then he turns to his disciples in this moment here while he's having to dismiss the crowds. He says he made the disciples get into the boat. Jesus responds to the will of the people by looking at his disciples and immediately ushering them to their boat. Immediately ushering them to their boat. And next, he made them get into the boat. So when you look at the word made, it comes from the, gives the idea of compel, strongly persuade. So just picture the scene. Tens of thousands of people trying to clamor to make Jesus king. And Jesus is like, no, this is not why I'm here. This is not why I came. He looks at his disciples. Come on, come on, let's go. Let's go, get to the boat, get to the boat. No, Jesus, certainly no. This, listen, this is why you're here. Can you hear the disciples thinking that, saying that? Jesus is compelling them. He's making them, he's encouraging them. No, go, get into the boat, get into the boat. Let's go, let's get over to the other side. Get into the boat The fact that the text says he had to make or compel the disciples to get into the boat shows us that this was not what they wanted to do. It would have been the obvious thing for them, for Jesus to become king, because this is what they thought was going to happen. This is what they desired to happen. They didn't understand the eternal implications of what Jesus was moving towards through the cross and through his resurrection. So Jesus is compelling them to go and they must obey. They must obey. They must listen. They must trust the Lord. They must trust him. Jesus is calling his disciples to trust him. He's calling his disciples to obey him. And this would have been a radical obedience because it was going against what they wanted to do. He had to compel them, to push them, to engage them and say, no, you must go to the other side. Get in the boat. Obedience and trust. Trust and obedience. Is this not the Christian life? Is it, does that not summarize the heart of the Christian life? It's trust and obedience, obedience and trust. And I think it's no different for these disciples. We often look at these types of accounts and we, 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 we maybe disconnect ourselves from what was actually going on in these disciples' lives. They were really seriously having to make a decision to obey the Lord in that moment. And he was really having to compel them to motivate them to get into the boat. He had to make them go and get into the boat. They had to surrender to his compelling of them to go because the crowd was clamoring because this was the moment that they thought Jesus was born for. And this is the essence of the Christian life. Trust and obedience. Will we trust? We see this call all throughout scripture. I, one account that stands out to me of, of, of this reality that the Christian life is obedience and trust and trust and obedience and surrendering of our rights and our desires. This is the Christian life. Matthew 16 is a great example. Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 16, verse 24 through 25, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is the Christian life? 
denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after Jesus. Christianity is nothing less than that. It's nothing less than a denial of yourself. Jesus, this is the moment. This is your time. And maybe there were some motives mixed into the disciples' heart. We are his 12. There's, there's, there is tens of thousands of people over here clamoring for him to be king, but we have the inside track, right? We got the inside track. Yes, Jesus, this is the time. This is the moment. No, get to the boat. Get to the boat. I'm not meant to be an earthly king. I am meant to be an eternal king. Get to the boat. Deny yourself. Deny your desires. This is the Christian life. This is the call. The Lord is calling his disciples to radical obedience. In this text, in this account, in this story, and this is our call. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Jesus. In short, we could say the Christian life In the Christian life, we are called to do things God's way and not our own. That's the Christian life, called to do things God's way and not our own. Do you ever struggle with that, doing things God's way? How many of you struggle, like I do, to want to do things my way? Anybody like to do that? Oh, I'm bad bad about that. You can ask my wife, how many times do I put my foot in my mouth, both my feet? I I put both my feet in my mouth very often because I like to try to do things and say things my way. Right? But the Christian life is that we're called to do things God's way and not our own. Listen, get in the boat. Go to the other side. But Lord, can you hear him? Look at the praise you're receiving. Look at what the people want. Get in the boat. Trust me. You remember the rich young ruler? Here's another account, right? The rich young ruler comes. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, Obey the commandments, Jesus says. Okay, well, hey, I've done all that. I've checked all the boxes. I've done those since my youth. Jesus looks at the rich young ruler. He loves him. And he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. We don't come to Jesus on our terms. We come to Jesus on his terms. We deny ourselves. We do things his way. Get in the boat. Go to the other side. Do it my way. Obedience. Trust obedience. This is what we see in this text. This account of Jesus walking on the water, Jesus is calling his disciples to radical obedience. You think you have an idea of what should happen. I'm telling you, get in the boat, trust me, obey me. Trust me, obey me. Do it my way. Do it my way. How many of you have kids here today? Kids? Grandkids? I've had a few conversations with my kids throughout the years and I've said something like this, trust me, just do it like I said. You ever had that conversation? And they're not wanting to listen to you. And you're just sitting back like, okay, fine, go ahead, do it, do it your way. I'll be sitting back here waiting. You'll come back and we'll have another conversation. And I'll say again, trust me, do it like I said. Isn't that true? of our relationship with our kids, how much more does that reflect our relationship with our Heavenly Father? And he's saying in our life, trust me, do it my way. This is the worldly way to fight for position, to fight for power, that the crowd is clamoring for you to be king. How could you ever pass that up, Lord? Trust me, get in the boat, obey me, go to the other side, right? The, The kingdom of God is an opposite kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. The way of the world is to go one direction towards authority, power, influence, money, success. The the kingdom of God is to go the opposite direction towards humility, towards obedience, towards trust, towards faithfulness. 
towards denying of self, not self-gratification. Opposite kingdom. Trust me, just do it like I said. Obey me. Follow after me. So, so this applies so clearly in our life. It's really simple, but it's not always easy. Obey the Lord in your life. We're called to obey the Lord. These, desire, these disciples in John 6 had a decision to make. The Lord was compelling them to go. Compelling them to go. Making them go. You need to go. You must go. They had to choose to obey the Lord. Would they do it his way or would they fight against him and try to make him king? And this is how we have to live our life. We have to obey the Lord. What is he telling you to do? You know, so often in our life, we, we want to know God's will for our life. We struggle with that, knowing God's will. And so here's a question for you. What is he telling you to do in his word? We're often looking for other sources for how God can tell us what to do in our life. And my, my, my question to you is, is what, is God, has, what is, has God already said to you in your life? What has he said to you through his word? What areas of your life have you not submitted to him and given him control over in your life, in your marriage, in your purity, in your finances, in your friendships? Do it his way. Follow his word. This is a Christian life. Obey and trust. Trust and obey. I I love what Warren Wearsby says about this account. He says, if the disciples had stayed, they would certainly have fallen in with the plans of the crowd. For as yet, the disciples did not fully understand Christ's plans. They were guilty of arguing over who was the greatest and a popular uprising would have suited them perfectly. I think a scripture the disciples needed to hear and it's one that we need to hear as his disciples, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. There's always a way that seems right to us. And in this account, this would have been the way that seemed right to those disciples. It's what seemed right to the crowd, But Jesus says, no, get into the boat. So the first thing we see in this account is that the Lord calls his disciples to radical obedience. Obey me. This is the Christian life. Jesus tells his disciples, it's time to leave. Go on the other side. The second thing we see from the Lord and his disciples, this interaction, the second thing we see is that the Lord departs and intercedes for his disciples. So he tells them, get in the boat and go. And we see he departs and he intercedes for his disciples. And we'll see. We'll unpack this about him going to the mountain and praying. Let's look back at John 6, 16 through 17. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So Matthew gives us the detail of Jesus having to make them go, Right? And John gives us the detail here that Jesus had not yet come to them. They left, they got in the boat, and they obeyed. They obeyed. But no doubt, as they're getting in the boat, Jesus does this. He kicks the boat into the water, right? He gives them the final push. And now it's dark. John says it was now dark when evening had come. Likely around 6 to 7 p.m. And John says this. Jesus had not yet come to them. He had not yet come to them. So at 6 or 7 p.m., they're getting into the boat. They obeyed the Lord, but he's not with them. Where did Jesus go after he compelled his disciples to leave in the middle 
of the pressure of the multitude. Where, where did Jesus go? Well, we've got to go back to Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew 14, 20, verse, starting in verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to, to pray. And when evening came, he was there all alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. So where was Jesus? When it says that he was not yet with them, where was he? He was on the mountain and he was praying. Jesus compels and sends his disciples to go over to the other side of the sea and he departs by himself to go up a mountain and to pray. And they're in the boat and the storm's coming. Matthew begins to tell us the storm is raging. The storm is beating. The boat was a long way from the shore, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They're going to go across the sea. The wind is against them, and the winds are beating against the boat. It's a three or four mile journey to get across, and they're having trouble. You remember Matthew 8? There's another account of, of the disciples in a boat, and the winds and waves were rough. Do you remember that? Where was Jesus during that time? That's Matthew chapter 8. He was in the boat, but he was sleeping. He was sleeping, but he was in the boat. Well, they're in the boat now, and Jesus is not there. Jesus is on a mountain praying by himself. So can you just, just think real-life disciples. We so often, as I said earlier, we disconnect it from how we would react. Think about this. Jesus, you're making me get into the boat. You're compelling me to go. And as fishermen, they no doubt could have seen when a storm was coming. So perhaps, we don't see it in the text, but perhaps they would have known and seen. Maybe that was one of the reasons why they had to be made to go and compelled to go because they're looking at the winds and they're looking at the sky. And as professional fishermen, they know that sky is not a good sign. That wind is not a good time to sail, not a good time to get into the boat. Can you imagine now they're in the boat, the winds are, the wind is against them and they're in a storm Can you imagine, where's Jesus? He's probably back with the crowd, uh, becoming a king, and we're out in the middle of this sea in this storm. I mean, you think, well, maybe they wouldn't think that. I think I would think that. I think you would think that. Wouldn't there be a little bit of frustration? They're in the middle of this sea, and the, the, the man who they believe should be king and Messiah compelled them to go into the boat, to go across the sea. But they obeyed. But what's Jesus doing? He's praying. They don't know that he's praying. They don't know where he's at. They don't know where he's at. He's praying. He's praying. He's by himself. He's praying. What does Jesus pray when he prays? Do we know what Jesus prays when he prays? Who does Jesus pray for when he prays? I think scripture tells us who he prays for when he prays. So we don't see explicitly in this text that he's praying specifically for the disciples in this text. But I, I, I think when we look at the, the wealth of scripture, Jesus is praying for those disciples. He compelled them to go. He said, you got to get across that sea. This is not why I'm here. You got to go. You got to go. I'm not here to be an earthly king. Get in the boat and go. The storm comes. He's on the mountain. He's praying. And if Jesus is praying, we know Jesus is praying for them. How do we know that? Look at Luke 22. Listen to our Lord. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Who does the Lord pray for when he prays? For you. For me. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Then you have the Holy of Holies in the New Testament, John 17. I think it's the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. Have you read it? John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. What does Jesus pray when he prays to the Father? He says says to the Father, I am praying for them. 
He says, I'm praying for you, for my disciples. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, those that aren't my disciples, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours and and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. He's praying, sanctify them in the truth for your word is truth. When Christ prays, he prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for his children. Get in the boat. Obey me. Go to the other side. And now, through obedience, they find themselves in the middle of a storm. But where's Jesus? They're looking, they certainly are looking for him. Where is he? He's nowhere to be found. He's on the mountain. But I believe he's praying for them. Jesus is our high priest who intercedes for us. How do, how do we know this? Hebrews 7. Verse 23, the former priests were were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Christ, holds his priesthood permanently. There's only one permanent priest. That's Christ. Because he continues forever. He is eternal. Consequently, because he holds his priesthood permanently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. How do you get to the Father? You draw near to the Father through through Christ. The only way for salvation is to draw near to the Father through Christ. He, Christ is the only means for salvation. Do you believe that? And look what it says. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. If Jesus is praying, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for these disciples. Get in the boat. Go. Obey me. You're in a storm, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm interceding for you. Have you, ever, have you ever asked somebody to pray for you? Maybe earlier this morning you asked somebody to pray for you. You ever asked somebody to pray for you and they pray for you and, and you think, oh, that's such a good prayer, such a nice prayer. But man, it'd be really nice if I could have got so-and-so to pray for me. Because if they would have prayed for me, then certainly maybe God would have heard a little bit better. Or have you ever, have you ever thought, if I, could, if I could have had Billy Graham to pray for me, if I could have had... Charles Spurgeon to pray for. If I could have had, speak of a a hero of the faith, somebody you look up to in the faith, if I could have just had them pray for me. I'll never forget, throughout the years of watching Pastor Renee pray down here for people, it was funny to watch people that would would only wait, that could only be prayed for Pastor by Pastor Renee. And I know it's your pastor and you want him to pray for you, but I think it was kind of, he had the white hair, he looked like Moses, so clearly he's got a closer connection, right? So we're going to pray, get him to pray for me. Right? And instinctively, we may feel that way, but we would never articulate it like that, that we think his prayers are better, right? But sometimes we think, man, if we could get him to pray for us or her to pray for us, or they're really close to God and their prayers will really make an impact. How about the knowledge that the eternal God of creation is the one that is praying for us? I can pray for you and You can pray for somebody else and your spiritual hero can pray for you and all that is good and God uses that through the building for the building up the body of Christ. But the God of creation right now is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He's praying for us. What storm are you in? What are you walking through right now? Jesus is praying for you. You walked in obedience and you find yourself in a storm. He's with you. He's praying for you. The disciples had obeyed the Lord. They now found themselves in the middle of a stormy sea. Has that ever happened to you? God, I'm obeying you. Why is this hard? I'm not supposed to be going through this. I'm obeying you. 
I would get it if I disobey and it would be difficult, but now I'm obeying you and now it's hard. The question we have to ask ourselves as disciples of Christ when we walk in obedience to the Lord's call and we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, what will we do? How will we respond? I love what one commentator said about the storm the disciples found themselves in. It says this, when, when we find ourselves in the storm because we have obeyed the Lord, we must remember that he brought us here and he can care for us. Amen? He brought us here and he can care for us. God, I'm obeying you. I'm seeking you, seeking to obey your word, to follow after your ways. You brought me here. I'm following your principles and your word. You brought me here. I don't understand this storm, but if you brought me here, you will take care of me. I may not get it. I may not see it. I may be in the middle of the boat thinking, you, you had me come here. You had me go here. You had me say yes. You put the opportunity in front of me. You had me say yes. You, and I said yes. I obeyed. And now I'm in the middle of the storm. Where are you, Lord? We can think he's forgotten. We can think he's nowhere to be found. But we can rest assured that in the middle of that time, in the middle of that moment, in the middle of that fear, we must remember in the darkest valleys we face that our Lord is praying for us. We must remember that walking in obedience does not exempt us from suffering. The Lord calls his disciples to radical obedience. And when we obey and we suffer, even in our obedience, the Lord is interceding for his disciples. Thirdly, here this morning, as we continue this narrative, what we have to do here is we have got three sections to kind of wrap this up, to kind of see the, 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 this, this uh, not quite the conclusion. We'll have a conclusion in a few moments, but the, the kind of this, this uh, continuing of this narrative while they're on the sea. And while the, the storm is raging, the, the third thing we're going to see this morning is that the Lord comes to his disciples in the middle of the storm. He calls them to obey. He's, in, he's off praying, I believe, praying for them. But then he comes. He comes in the middle of the storm. Let's look at three sections, three different pictures. It's like a multifaceted diamond. You get to, we get to turn it through John, through Matthew and Mark and see the beauty of this. John 6 Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking in the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. What does Matthew say? And in the fourth watch of the night, great detail there, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Okay, what does Mark say? And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them and was about the fourth watch of the night, as Matthew said. And he came to them walking in the sea. He meant to pass them by. Such a great detail, right? We're gonna bring this out in a moment. This is so powerful. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking in the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. So what do we see here? Some amazing details. Firstly, a strong wind was blowing and created stormy seas. We see that, right? They're in the boat. They've obeyed. They got in the boat. Jesus is praying. Strong wind, strong storms. Next detail. They had been rowing three to four miles against the wind into the fourth watch of the night. So understand what is being said here. What is the fourth watch of the night? 
the fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So do you remember, when did, they kick, when did Jesus kick the boat into the water and say, get out of here? Around 6 to 7 p.m. So if just rounded number here, they could potentially have been rowing for 12 hours. 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. 10, 11, 12 hours. They're rowing against the wind. It's a three to four mile journey. If there would have been no wind, no storms, it would have been about a 30 to 45 minute journey in a boat. But they've been rowing for 12 hours. Now, do you remember when I said earlier that they were having some crazy thoughts about why they're in the boat? Now you know why. They were, they were doing this for 12, 10 to 12 hours rowing against the wind. 12 hours. Now, here's another detail. Jesus passed by them on purpose. He meant to pass by them. And, and, and when you read that at first, you might could even think that it meant he, he meant to pass by them, like I'm going to get around them, right? But that's not what it means. It meant he meant to pass by. It literally is translated desired to come alongside of. Isn't that so good? I could have done cartwheels in my office when I was reading that. It's so good. Obey me, get in the boat, go across the sea. Okay? The storm comes. They're rowing for 12 hours. He's up interceding and praying for them. This is a test of their life. And he comes out. He's walking on the sea. Puts himself just in the position. They're out there struggling. Hey, guys, I'm over here. Isn't that so powerful about our Savior? He's like, hey, I'm over here. I'm with you. He wanted to be near them in the middle of their pain. So what, what, what happens? They cry out in fear because they think it's a ghost walking in the water. There, there could have been, I think that there were kind of legends and, and mystical ideas of sea monsters and sea ghosts. And these are fishermen. They would have known all those stories. And they're looking out and they're thinking, ah, it's a ghost. And what does Jesus say? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What does it mean to take heart? It means to have courage. Jesus is off on the side, trying to just stealth, stealthily get their attention. He says, take courage, have courage. Why should they have courage? Notice what he says. He says, have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And no doubt, this is a reference to the Old Testament reality of who God is. He is the eternal I am. Why do they need to have courage and take heart? Because the eternal I am is walking on the water right next to them. Take heart because I'm here. God is here. The one who's in control of over nature. Did you forget? You forgot what I did when I was asleep on the boat and you woke me up and I said, oh, you have little faith and I'll calm the winds and the waves. Oh, by the way, I'm back again. I'm on the waves. I'm here. It's I. Take heart. Don't, 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 don't lose courage. I'm here. The great I am is here. The Lord compels the disciples to go and quickly leave the potential coronation. They obey the Lord and find themselves in the middle of a fierce storm, rowing for 12 hours. And Jesus, I believe, is fulfilling his high priestly role of praying for them. And after hours of toil and struggle, after exhaustion and certain despair, the Lord walks out to where they are. 
And it is not an accident. He comes near to them. He comes near to them. This is what our God does. He comes near to us in our brokenness. He comes near to us in our pain. He is not distant from us, but he is near to us. When we think we're in the middle of the storm and we're rowing and where are you, God? He is near to us. How do we know that? Psalms 34 tells us that. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is who our Lord is. He comes near to us in our pain. He comes near to us in our struggle. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, behold, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Amen? Amen. Our God is a God who is near the brokenhearted. He is near those who have been rowing for hours and hours and seemingly months and years and you've been up against the wind has been against you in your life. Have you felt that way before? The wind is against you in your life. Circumstance after circumstance and pain after pain and rejection and difficulty and struggle. It's against you, but the Lord is with you. He's near you. I love what R. Kent Hughes says about this story. He says, so there were the disciples battling the gale, wondering if they would ever make it to shore. The storm is raging. The waves were immense. The water was sloshing in the dark hold of their beleaguered ship. The disciples probably wondered, has the Lord forgotten us? In this dark age, things can be so obscured by the secular winds of life and its problems that it looks as if Jesus has forgotten us. But he has not. He knows He cares, and he will come to our aid. The Lord comes to you in your struggle. He is near to you in your pain. He has not forgotten you. Have you ever forgotten a child before? I did. I was at church one day, preached a sermon, finished, talked to people, then talked to people, then talked to people, then interacted here, went there, went back to my office, got together my stuff, thought my wife would come in separate vehicles because I'd come earlier. My wife left, and I thought she had all the kids. And I get in my car, and I leave. And I get down the road, and I get a call from Jared LaFont. I don't know if you ever get a call from Jared LaFont whenever you forget your kid, but I got a call from Jared LaFont. He said, hey, you missing somebody? He said, I don't think so. He said, well, I've got somebody that you forgot at church. He said, and my dad did that to me too. (laughs) So we met off of Highway 311, I think Cocoa Fit Place. I don't know if it's even so open. We met in the parking lot and I got my boy and I forgot. Aren't you thankful that God's not like us? He's not distracted by a crowd. I mean, think about it. 
He's not distracted by that crowd. Even the crowd in John 6, he's not distracted by. He says, they're in it for something different than I'm here for. Right? He's not distracted by a crowd. He's not distracted by anything. He cares for you and for you and for you. And he won't forget you. He is with you. He's not like your pastor who might forget you. He's the eternal God who never forgets you, always remembers you, is with you in the middle of your storm. There are two kinds of storms that we might face in the Christian life. Storms of correction, when God disciplines us. And storms of perfection, when God helps us to grow. Jonah was in a storm because he disobeyed God and had to be corrected. So hear me. There are times when you find yourself in a storm, but it's because you disobeyed. And the Lord loves you and he's going to correct you. The, the, the disciples, however, were in a storm because they obeyed Christ and had to be perfected. Jesus had tested them in a storm before. You remember that, Matthew 8? When he was in the boat with them. But now he tested them by being out of the boat. So, how does this apply in our life? I believe all of us are walking through some kind of storm right now. If I gave you the opportunity to share, we'd hear all the different things that we're all walking through. So the application for us right here is to discern what God is doing. Am I in a storm and God's correcting me because of bad choices that I've made? Yield to that correction and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to become more like Christ. Are you in a storm because you obeyed? Hold on for the ride and let God make you more like Christ. Either way, correction, perfection, in either of those types of storms, God is with you. He doesn't forget you. He's praying for you. Storms of correction and storms of perfection. So I I love the conclusion. Here's the conclusion of this story. This is so profound. Let's look back at Matthew. Matthew really gives us the great conclusion. John doesn't talk about this, doesn't talk about Peter walking on the water. I think maybe John didn't like Peter very much. Do you remember John said that whenever him and Peter were running to to the tomb, who was it that that won? John won, right? And John wanted us all to know that he outran Peter. I think there might be a little rivalry, so he wasn't going to talk about how Peter walked on water. He wasn't going to give him that glory. But Matthew tells us, Matthew 14, here's the conclusion, 28 through 33. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Remember, they thought I was a ghost. Take heart, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. And, but, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And a little side note here. You know Peter had to sink. He had to sink. He couldn't just keep walking on the water. Notice when they got back in the boat, who, who did they worship? The one who didn't sink. Right? Can you imagine? Peter walked on the water and he, he walked back. He, he never sunk. Wow, Peter, you're a lot more than what I thought you were. <laughs> no, only one doesn't sink, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And they worshiped him. I, I love Peter. You know, there's many things you can think about Peter and, and many things we could say that we would not emulate in Peter's life. Peter was impulsive. Do you remember when they went to arrest Jesus? What did Peter do? Got that sword out. Cut off 
one of the soldier, Malchus's ear, right? He's impulsive. He says things he shouldn't say at the, the wrong time. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter said, no, you can never wash my feet. He says, he says Jesus, you're, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, I got to go die. Peter says, oh, no, you can't die. Right? Peter, there's so many things you could say. Don't be like Peter. What did Peter do? He denied the Lord three times. Don't be a denier. Right? But I love Peter. If, there, if this would be the only place in Scripture that we would see something positive to emulate from Peter's life, this is it. Lord, is it really you? Is it, is it really you? Because if it's you, bid me to come. Lord, is it you? I've been rowing for 12 hours. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And I think I'm delusional right now because it, it, like it looked like it's a ghost. I have no energy left, no strength left, Lord. But if that is you, I recognize your voice. I hear your still, small voice. I hear it. I know it's you. I'm Elijah in the cave. I read that this morning. Elijah in the cave, that still, small voice. God, I recognize if it's you, bid me to come. I'm jumping into the stormy seas. If it's you, Lord, I'm coming. Exhausted, no strength left, but I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, Lord. Peter knows that if anyone will be able to save him is Jesus. We have to understand that in the middle of that storm rowing and, and, and in the waves for 12 hours, they're in a place of desperation. And I believe what we must emulate in Peter is that Peter had this recognition and this understanding that if anyone was going to be able to save him out of the storm, it was going to be Jesus. He remembered, no doubt he remembered what happened in earlier in Matthew 18. That though Jesus was sleeping, he woke up and calmed the storm. And so he had the faith enough to say, God, if it's you, Jesus, if it's you, bid me to come because I am coming after you. I'm coming after you. And so this is the call for all of us. Wherever you are in your life, whatever struggles you're walking through, whatever challenges that you're in, the enemy of your soul wants to get you to the position to believe that God has forgotten you. That Jesus has left you alone rowing for 12 hours against the wind. But may we emulate Peter and may we say, Lord, if it's you, I'm coming after you. I know that you're there. I know you've not forsaken me. You've not abandoned me. And Lord, I'm coming after you. The Lord comes near so we will pursue. He comes near to us in our struggle so we will be like Peter and jump into the storm and say, Lord, I am coming after you. I'm not running from you. I'm running to you. I'm leaning on you. I'm depending on you. I'm trusting in you. Sink or swim. Lord, bid me to come. So back to the main point. The Lord calls his disciples to obey and to trust him in every circumstance. So back to our first questions. You want five pre-cares? You want five offensive linemen? You going to lean back on them? You, do, do you want the, the pre-cares or the offensive linemen? Who, who's going for the offensive linemen? Okay, you answered too quick. I had a third option. How about the God of creation who is never failing and worthy of our trust? How about him? If it's you, Lord, bid me to come. Who are we going to lean on? Who are we going to lean on? Maybe learn from Peter, learn from this account. I heard this song for the first time a few days ago, and I've been listening to it on repeat. It's a song by Matt Marr called Leaning. Have you heard that song? 
Who are we going to lean on? Listen to these words. Let my yes be yes to you, O Lord. Let my no be no to the things of this world. If I rise or fall, if I stand at all, I am leaning on your everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, what a priceless gift. God, I'm yours and you are mine. Let my restless soul be still and know I am leaning on your everlasting arms. From the morning sun and mercies new to the evening stars, every promise is true. As I walk this world, I'm being held by you. I am leaning on your everlasting arms. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. What a priceless gift. God, I'm yours and you are mine. Let my restless soul be still and know I'm leaning on your everlasting arms. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Amen. Amen. Would you, would you pray? Would you bow your heads and let's close in prayer. Lord Father, thank you for not passing by us. Thank you for never leaving us alone. Lord Father, thank you that you are always, always praying for us. Lord, may we be so faithful to always be praying for others, for our family, for our pastors, for our brethren, and to be doing your will in all that we do. That we learn to be prayer warriors, Lord, as you are a prayer warrior in all things, remembering We're never forgotten. We're always on your mind. We're always in your heart. And you're always there if we just reach out to you and grab your hand and grab the promises you have for us of life in you. We thank you and praise you. In the name of God the Father, his Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.